Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shibiglani. Today, we're going to learn about an important new report on global healthcare, addressing two questions that are constant themes on Raise the Line. What will healthcare look like in 10 years? And how can we prepare clinicians for that future? I'm delighted to welcome two colleagues from our parent company, Elsevier, Dr. Tate Erlinger, Vice President of Clinical Analytics, and Dr. Ian Chuang, Chief Medical Officer of Global Health, to discuss the findings of Elsevier's just-released Clinician of the Future Global Report. Elsevier and its partner, Ipsos, engaged nearly 3,000 clinicians from 111 countries to reveal current pain points, predictions for the future, and how the industry can build a roadmap to future-proof healthcare. I'm really looking forward to getting the details. So Ian and Tate, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks for letting us be here. We always like to start with, in our guests' own words, their background and what got them to this point. So Ian, let's start with you. What got you interested in medicine and how did you become the chief medical officer at Elsevier? Uh, So my clinical background is in family medicine, and I've had the fortune of practicing in actually two different healthcare systems. I'm a graduate of University of Toronto and practiced in Canada before getting recruited to the U.S. to continue my practice in primary care. And uh, it was really an interest of just, you know, the human biology at its center. And then obviously the opportunity to to be impactful and and making the connections with individuals uh, through their health and illness journey as a primary care physician. Interestingly enough, I ended up transitioning to more of an informatics role because I had a passion about how do we improve the healthcare system as a process. And that requires data. And when I was practicing, it was just the beginning of digital uh, information and digital healthcare transformation. So I had the privilege of getting involved in the early days of figuring this out. How do we transition to electronic environment? And then what can we do with the data? So in my role as chief medical officer of Elsevier, it is really around communicating the experience and vision around the full potential of digital transformation partnering and working with other healthcare uh, leaders and organizations in their journey and my contribution in that role from my experience, but then also taking advantage of the assets and the knowledge of Elsevier. I've enjoyed seeing some of your posts on on social media, like LinkedIn, um, some of the articles you've written about the healthcare worker shortage. So seeing your involvement in clinicians of the future was was a good development. How about you, Tate? Let's get into your background and how you uh, came to be the vice president of clinical analytics. I took a roundabout way uh, through healthcare uh, a little bit as well. I made the decision early to go into medicine for the simple reason of, you know, wanting to help people, wanting to contribute to the betterment of, you know, my community was that simple. I didn't really know anyone in medicine. No one in my family was in medicine, but I went to medical school, started to uh, really enjoyed the experience. And then went and did a, a residency at the University of Chicago in internal medicine. And there I was exposed to two things that I did not know about really before. One is the world of clinical research, uh, so as opposed to laboratory research. And the other uh, was these were the early internet days in the year between my residency and fellowship, did a tech startup of sorts that still sort of exists. After my residency, I, I went to Johns Hopkins and uh, did a fellowship and a master's in public health and really studied clinical research and stayed on faculty there for about eight years or so and, and was doing um, academic medicine, about 80%, 20% clinical and internal medicine. I transitioned out of that kind of like Ian as the world became more digital 
there just grew an interest in data analytics and healthcare and informatics. These were things that uh, didn't really exist for physicians very much prior to the 2000s. So I found myself in analytics positions uh, for accountable care organizations, large health organizations, and building analytics and sort of communicating the, those findings to healthcare leaders, to uh, physician and nurse leadership. And that's what Elsevier was building, uh, and Elsevier was trying to expand their footprint in that arena. So I ended up at Elsevier. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And this this interview is coming a couple weeks after we had one with the head of clinical solutions and LexisNexis Health, Josh Scholler, your your colleague, obviously, who spent a lot of time talking to us about the data sets that Elsevier has. Um, so it makes sense that you both would wind up here as well. So. You know, the focus of this is the report. I'm curious, uh, either one of you can start on this. You know, give us the big picture behind the Clinicians of the Future report. You know, why did Elsevier think it was needed? How did you go about conducting the study? And what are you hoping it leads to and accomplishes? So I am actually uh, participating in this podcast from HIMSS 2022. This is the uh, closing uh, day for, for the exhibition hall. The theme for this year is Reimagine Health. So the clinician of the future really aligns to that, right? As we're coming out of COVID and we're focusing on the reimagined health and taking in all the learnings and experience where the health system has been stressed globally, where the clinicians have been stressed, where the process of care and the patient experience has been turned upside down. The clinician of the future is a timely report that basically starts to answer some key questions and provide insights about in this reimagined health world, what would the role of a clinician need to look like to be effective, caring, empathetic clinicians treating and assessing and, and uh, providing care for the population that we serve, recognizing that there's all these factors to be considered as we go into a digital, more digital ecosystem. It's really getting that feedback from those on the front line with a broad global perspective of what it takes, what are the barriers and opportunities, and what do we collectively across all the stakeholders from the frontline clinicians to healthcare leaders, even educators and, and, and institutions to achieve the full potential of this future vision of a truly digital transformed uh, healthcare ecosystem, delivering on the full potential that we know that we can achieve. Obviously you, you reached quite a few clinicians in this report, over 3000 across, as we said in the intro, 111 countries. So it's pretty comprehensive, and I'm, I'm very curious to know what the overlaps are across the countries. But before we go into some of the key findings, uh, Tate, was there anything you wanted to add to that kind of general uh, big picture of the report and you know what you're hoping it accomplishes for the environment? You know, I think Ian summarized it well. I think I would just add the tangential point to some extent. A lot of the findings of this report have been emerging for some time. In healthcare, there's been evidence of, of this from other surveys, maybe not as global in nature, but many of the findings here have been echoed, or at least there were warning signs of this in previous data. And I think what this report does is it shows what's happening during the pandemic itself, but also allows us to shift the conversation a little bit from problems to solutions. So going into you know key findings and potential solutions, one of the areas of emphasis in the report is needing support developing health technology skills. Um, and I know that's one of your areas of expertise, Ian. I think it was 69% of clinicians surveyed believe the widespread use of digital health technologies will be a challenging burden on responsibilities if they aren't appropriately supported. And about 38% believe healthcare training and education 
is needed to stay up to date on these areas, on digital health and telehealth and those kind of aspects of healthcare delivery. Now, I may have already given some of those facts that you were going to share, but what are some of the key findings uh, that you'd like to add to in terms of that segment? I think the importance of this is the global perspective. And there are some nuances in the data and the responses that contextualize to how the healthcare system looks and where they are in that journey to digitalization and digital transformation. So the good part is collectively, universally, there was the belief and the uh, vision of the benefit that is possible recognizing when what you've called out, which is that we may have put the technology too far ahead. We may have sort of thrown technology at the problem, not realizing that a healthcare system is complex. There's people culture, there's process in addition to tools and technology that have to align as we transition and pivot and transform. So um, without some of the backend requirements to develop the skills, the clinical acumen that is now inclusive of data analytics, right? It used to be, uh, we joke, garbage in, garbage out in terms of the data use and access. But now with ever increasing large data sets, you also have to be skilled at data processing, being discernful of good data versus bad and, and how to weed through all that uh, volume of data. So those are skills that we've learned on the job, but we may have to consider baking it into the whole educational system. You know, we develop clinical acumen about how we look at research studies, how we process that and, and apply judgment to good evidence, medium evidence, low evidence quality. I think we need to do the same with data that gets presented to us at the point of care even. And that's a skill set and it needs the same discipline, uh, rigor as we do with clinical knowledge and, and biology and things like that that's part of the curriculum now. I think we're still working in an old paradigm, but we're working in a new paradigm and the two have to better align. I've been in informatics and healthcare technology for quite some time. And what I would say is, you know, physicians are just like anyone else out there in terms of their use of technology. They all have a phone, they all, you know, they all have an iPhone, they, you know, they have laptops, et cetera. The idea that somehow physicians are less tech savvy than the average person, I think is incorrect. The difference is, is that technology um, is now inserting itself into a relationship. And there are good things and bad things about that. So for example, the good things are, is that care is, can be more standardized. Certain documentation aspects that are important for analytics are, are critical for accurate analytics are much easier with EHRs. Uh, information moves faster. More than one person can look at the chart at a time. Back in the paper days, you had to wait for somebody to finish with the chart. However, things are more complicated with this as well. It's like putting a computer in front of somebody and saying, have a conversation with somebody in 15 minutes, but you have to type while you're doing it. And we want you to evaluate the strength of that relationship afterwards. Well, it's not just the computer that's changed, it's the time in the room, the throughput, the patient through clinical offices has increased. And now you're inserting technology in front of them and in between two people who are trying to have a conversation. And so it, it can be disruptive. And I think that's what, in part, I don't think it's the only reason, but I think in part that's reflected in, you know, some of the data around impact to empathy. Although I sort of look at that as an impact to the relationship itself. It, it's just hard to do all the three things at once and feel like you're having someone's attention and feeling like that's a quality interaction. 
I'm glad you mentioned that, Tate, because our colleague and former RaiseLine guest to Jan Herzog, who, who runs health markets at Elsevier, um, tagged several of us when this report came out, talking about how uh, the patient-provider relationship has really changed as a result of telehealth. A lot of what we've done over the past two years with RaiseLine is focus on telehealth. We've had the chief medical officer and president of 98.6, Bradley Youngrenon. We've had uh, Joke Vidar and Anmon Johnson, who, who respectively ran the American Telemedicine Association. And so everyone was talking about how telemedicine has improved convenience, access, and those are true. But this report shows that over half of clinicians actually believe it's it's negatively impacting their ability to provide empathetic care to patients. So can you talk a bit more about that finding and, and what we can do about it? Well, I can speak from my own experience. So I still see patients and I uh, have been primarily uh, remote for the last two years in that engagement. And the impact is certainly there. It, you know, there's body language, they're just human, human interactions that in-person interactions capture that, that telehealth doesn't. That said, I would also say that telehealth has been a fantastic way to take care of relatively routine visits with patients at minimal uh, inconvenience for them. So most of my patients would be classified as the working poor. And I would say that for them, you know, traveling to a clinic and spending a couple hours in transit waiting and then going back home is a, as for anybody, is inconvenient, but perhaps especially for them, they may not be being paid during that time, et cetera. And there is no doubt that telehealth in some respects is, is meeting their convenience needs. Is it impacting the relationship? Yes, but I don't think it's an all or none. I don't think the choice necessarily has to be always telehealth or never telehealth. I think the question is, can we take advantage of the technology we have to meet patients' needs and just optimize the relative use of in-person and remote engagement. And I think we need to get into a more, a discussion with more fidelity, getting beyond the marketing spin, the social media buzz around telehealth. It's just a modality, right? So, and what I mean by that is let's talk about the various population subsets and where and how, how I would call them more virtual care, right? Because it could be televideo, it could be telephonic. Those are modalities, but it's about providing care virtually through a medium. And we can recall a time where we used to do that as a primary care, and we used to call that being on call, um, right? So it's not a new technology. Now, what we can see is when there's an established relationship as a subgroup of patient-physician relationships, I've already got that familiarity with the patient, that as a context, there's trust and relationships there. There's the discernment of voice and visual behaviors that has built up over years that I can already discern. I think for that kind of dynamic, virtual care does not lose empathy. It actually enhances the relationship because there's the sense of connectedness when for reasons like COVID, it forced the separation of a face-to-face -face connection and encounter. But for a complex condition, for somebody who's never seen me as a physician, there is that two-dimensional barrier that says, I see you, but I don't know you. And we've never had a relationship to build a therapeutic alliance. So I think we've got to separate those two conversations and get to clinical processes in the context of the clinical relationships and the clinical dynamics and, and not sort of lump everything in one bucket and said, you know, telehealth is, is cold or it solves everything. I don't think it's either or. That's really insightful. And um, especially, you know, one of our guests was Dr. David Mao of Cerebral, which is one of the largest providers of telehealth for telepsychiatry. 
And he made the point too that a lot of patients in psychiatric care and are receiving that through telemedicine, they get tossed around between different providers. And that's an area where in particular you want to have trust and data points. So uh, I agree that we have to be a little more nuanced with how it works, when it works, and then start training our future clinicians to, to better deal with technologies like telehealth and remote patient monitoring, et cetera. Um, speaking of training future physicians, we started osmosis almost a decade ago because we wanted to make learning medicine more efficient. And we realized that there was this global shortage of providers that was coming. The WHO estimated tens of millions of providers, doctors, nurses, frontline healthcare workers would be needed by 2030. And this was in 2015, they were projecting this before COVID. The Clinicians of the Future report shows that, you know, in, in summaries I've seen too, nearly a fifth of US healthcare workers have left healthcare altogether since February 2020, about two years ago. Um, one in three clinicians are considering leaving their current role by 2024. And so this is pretty dire that there was massive shortages before the pandemic and now after the pandemic, or we're still in the pandemic, but you know, at this stage, two years into the pandemic, it's even worse than we thought before. What are some of the things that you take away from this report about training the next generation of clinicians, care coordination teams, et cetera, that can maybe provide a silver lining to this issue of shortages, or is it all sort of doom and gloom at this point? Yeah, there are a lot of sort of points of improvement to really address this fundamental problem, right? It's starting from the, the front end, which is uh, generating interest in the STEMs and, and human biology as a starting point. New graduates have asked me, you know, should I consider medicine? I said, at the heart of it, if you love science and human biology and you feel meaningful work is through working with people and impacting their lives, then the heart of the answer is yes. The rest is just trying to work through and figure out how to find a right fit and role. But the broader system needs to support. One of the, the, the inputs and feedback from this uh, clinician of the future study was, I see the potential, I just need support, right? I need better uh, training and education and skills development to align where healthcare is going. Without that, there's the belief and the feeling that it's like, you're just leaving me out there. You're just, and you're just throwing technology at the problem and you expect me to react, which is a, not a supportive, collaborative type of a, a dynamic and feeling. So, but that's only one part of it. It is recruiting. It is um, dealing with the model of care, the burden and emphasis on reimbursements and financial viability. Sometimes that comes at uh, imposition on, on how you're practicing care, you know, things like RVUs, all those things do weigh in. Those are things that have to be addressed at macro level as well. But for the things that we can do to set the clinicians up well is, you know, building the passion in them, helping them feel that this is a worthwhile profession. Uh, there's no other profession like it. There is hard work, there's sacrifice, but if those around us that support the healthcare enterprises align and, and, and respect that and uplift us collectively, you know, COVID has shown we go above and beyond. It's in the DNA. When you're in this business, when you're in this profession, you will step up. We just need some support and skills uh, to back us up. It is very concerning. I think there's been quite a bit of shift in both the nursing and physician workforce uh, that have been amplified with the stress of COVID. So the, the burden of traveling nurses as opposed to uh, employed nurses and, and the financial burden that puts on institutions, but the flexibility that they give some nurses. But I think travelers are not the problem so much as just globally, there is quite a few factors, as uh, Ian said, coming to play. At least in my experience, uh, physicians 
experience some frustration with uh, the degree to which they're being micromanaged. There's a lot of looking over the shoulder of physicians in terms of quality metrics and reporting and uh, value-based contracts. And, and there's a feeling of being commoditized and there's a feeling of throughput and quality metrics that are, you know, are your value. And that's disconcerting for a lot of people to, to have the feeling that they're being reduced to, you know, something that must be measurable in every aspect. And they'll sometimes view the technology as just a way to measure more, but, but not necessarily make any, any improvements. And that, that I think is also a bit cynical. But I think there's a lot of pressures that are coming into play here. There's, you know, market pressures, there's uh, workforce pressures, there's, uh, you know, business consolidation and technology all kind of happening. And many of the physicians still in practice today remember a time when they were training when that wasn't the case. And that creates a bit of a you know, perhaps looking back and seeing a, a bit rosier picture than perhaps it was, but they remember the days when it, when it wasn't like that. And so I think that that creates some anxiety. It creates some stress, uh, but there's just a lot of change happening in a lot of different dimensions. Yeah, absolutely. And one, one thing I saw in the report, but definitely have heard anecdotally by talking to uh, people in the profession is that two years in to the pandemic, they're kind of shocked at how the public's view has changed. The report shows only 55% of clinicians think the public fully appreciates what profession is doing and has been doing, which seems very low compared, especially to the first few months of the pandemic where healthcare heroes was like a buzzword that people kept saying. And only 30% think the government is fully supporting them, um, which is obviously a result of things like the average, the median med school debt uh, in the U.S. is $200,000. So if we want somebody to be a healthcare hero, why do we saddle them with $200,000 of debt? Uh, that's a question that hopefully many schools, including some of our partner schools like New York University and Kaiser Permanente, have fully addressed by providing tuition-free education. And we've had people from both those programs on the RaiseLine podcast talking about that as well. So Tate, what do you think some of the follow-ups are from this report? What can Elsevier do? What should we be thinking about and doing to make these changes happen? I think we're planning on doing this annually. And the reason that's important is not just for the research itself, but we need to understand trends. We need to understand global trends and we need to understand that at, a, at the pace of change. And so doing that annually, as opposed to many, many years between will be helpful, number one, to give uh, just more in-depth insight. Number two, I think we have to begin to sort of take deeper dives into a certain area. Healthcare is not one thing. There's an ambulatory experience, there's an emergency room experience, there's a surgical experience, there's trauma, et cetera. And all of those experiences are quite different uh, for the physicians, for the nurses, for the patient and their families. We'd have to go into a little more detail around the types of care, uh, what those experiences are and kind of break them apart a bit. They're not all you know, monolithic. Another thing I think we could do is begin to sort of look at some of the big fears and gaps. So one of the ones we've talked about, and I think we as a company are positioned to do, is kind of potentially help with the information overload. So there's technology, yes, um, but there's also information overload. It used to be that you would carry in your pocket in your white coat a book or two and that were small little pocketbooks and you would use them as references. And that's basically what you had or you could go into the library and sort of, you know, read a textbook. 
the pace of information coming out in medical literature is overwhelming. It's not really realistic to think that anyone's uh, keeping up with, with the sheer volume of uh, publications coming out and sort of making sense of that. So we need to be, you know, I think a little smarter, a little more strategic, a little more creative about getting information to the point of care for reference, for making sure they're following the latest guidelines, but making that easy to do, making that easy to find and easy to act on in this limited engagement time and period that you have. And then I think uh, Ian raised another point, which is sort of what is it that people are wanting in terms of enhanced training? I think we should tease that apart. And I think we can get acting very quickly on, on some things. And other things I think are going to take conversations uh, with medical schools, with government entities. So I think there's lots of steps that could be done, but those are some ideas. Again, I'm really glad you guys have highlighted this in this report, because as you know, we collectively work with hundreds of medical nursing and other healthcare programs. And many of them, I mean, I'll call out folks like Warren Weichman at UC Irvine or Johannes V. Wig at uh, Nova Southeastern, or finally Mark Triola at NYU are very ahead of the curve in terms of adopting some of this training, adopting some of these forward-looking practices that, that come out in your report already in the training of future healthcare professionals, the clinicians of the future. The other thing I really want to point out that really stuck to me was that uh, in the report, it says 66% of the clinicians believe patients will be more empowered to take care of their own health. And as you know, we call this podcast Raise Line, which is how do we train more clinicians of the future? How do we improve healthcare quality? But the other piece of that is flatten the curve. How do we reduce the demands on the healthcare system through more preventive medicine and you know, providing the data directly to the patient, the education directly to the patient, which is a big focus of what we do at Osmosis, can hopefully reduce the demand on future providers. This is a really critical point. I really like that you raised that too, because especially in primary care where Ian and I come from, there is so much that the, that the patient has to take on and making it easy for patients to manage their diabetes, their high, you know, making things easy, removing barriers, allowing self-management. Those are huge advances that could both alleviate pressure on the healthcare system, uh, but also I think improve this relationship but I think you're right. I think um, it's been going on for quite some time that patients have access to more information. They're coming into offices with articles, you know, uh, and with Google uh, printouts. So that's been going on for some time. And that's great to me that that was disruptive at the time. But now it's sort of um, part of the conversation between two people. So I think it's a really important point to, to sort of champion self-empowerment or patient empowerment. Yeah, definitely. Ian, do you have anything to add to that point? You know, the reality is right now on my smartphone, there's more personal biometric and clinical data about myself than there is in an EMR, right? So there's a huge potential to tap into that. And with a motivated, engaged patient, there's an opportunity to be more precise and provide provision care if we can connect the data there with the clinician, with the consumer that's engaged. And the other uh, point I would make is also, if we can think of the role of clinicians, not by job title, but by skill set, there's huge potential to, to expand the resources necessary, especially around primary care. Two case in point, we've got two pilots in outside of North America, because of my role as a global chief medical officer, one in India, the one in Cambodia, where we're basically bringing knowledge and skills to rural communities where there's no luxury of bringing a doctor or a hospital 
to the last mile in the community. But instead, we have trusted resources like the ASHAs, who are just basically the community um, grandmother who are trusted based on their role in the community. You equip them with the knowledge. You help them stay within the skills that we've taught them. They are an excellent resources to provide, in this case, you know, primary maternity care. So that's an example of thinking differently, thinking outside the box, beyond the traditional brick and mortar structure of healthcare, beyond traditional title-based job role definitions of what is a primary care, but rather the skills to provide primary care, uh, then the potential is, is, is great. Glad you mentioned that. This is, again, one reason I like this report. It takes a real global view of the problem, and it's very interconnected, right? When there's a brain drain of African doctors to the U.S., as an example, then we're making the situation worse in Africa, potentially. Um, and so it's important for us to look at this globally, and that's certainly one of the appeals of Elsevier as a whole when we decided to join you all. Given the time, I wanted to wrap up with two questions. The first is, given our audience is comprised of you know millions of current and future healthcare professionals, what advice would you give to them about meeting the challenges of uh, COVID and beyond and becoming a clinician of the future? And let's start with you, Ian, and then go to you, Tate. So um, I would say if you love human biology and you feel rewarded when you're uh, connected with people and, and contributing to their health and well-being, then medicine as a profession is the right focus. What your job may look like is right now wide open as examples by all three of us here, right? We are still physicians at our core. We are still knowledgeable in medicine, but then where and how we apply it is right now highly variable because across the whole healthcare uh, ecosystem, there are multiple opportunities where a physician, a clinician with the medical background is necessary to innovate, to drive the necessary changes to achieve a better healthcare system. Yeah, I, yeah, it's a great question, Shiv. I'm lucky enough to be with undergraduate students in my clinic. It's a volunteer clinic. And I will give the same advice uh, that I give to them, which is, um, you know, kind of similar to Ian's, which is whether you decide to go into medicine may have a number of factors uh, involved, but the medicine of today is certainly broader. And what I mean by that is, it, there's technology. We're in a technology company, for example. There are just so many different things that can be done that were not really possible 30 years ago or people couldn't conceive of. And so you see uh, more and more healthcare workers with hybrid jobs where they're, where they're seeing patients, but they're also in tech where they're seeing patients and they're also in other organizations. And my thought is, you know, keep an open mind, create your future, create the path for the physicians or the nurses that follow you in a sense, and be open-minded in terms of what, what that career could look like uh, for you. That advice may not apply always, you would think, to some surgeons, but I would say, <laughs> I would say that my last boss in informatics was a vascular surgeon. So, <laughs> so it does apply. And so I think it's a profession that's evolving. It's a profession that will always be evolving and going through changes, society changes, but that creates opportunities. Absolutely. One of the privileges of hosting this podcast is meeting clinicians like you all who are not only clinicians in the future, off the future, but creating the future. That's been inspiring to see. My last question is open-ended. Is there anything else you'd like to let our audience know about this report, about Elsevier, about you guys individually uh, you'd like to leave them with? The one thing I would say is I would look at this report really as a call to action. There are some alarming numbers here, but medicine, healthcare has always responded. Healthcare has always responded and tended to meet the needs of the communities that 
you know, that they serve. And what I would say is this is a call to action. I think we need to be vigilant, and I think we need to look for and test solutions across a broad range of things. But I would not look at this as uh, some sort of um, apocalypse for medicine. I think it, you know, we have gone through waves of this before, and we will again. What is great about the profession is, is it tends to respond. I would agree. It's a start. It's creating awareness. It's generating conversation, and that's a necessary prerequisite to start engaging the broader stakeholders that are necessary to, to collaborate together to come to a solution and start to whittle away at challenges to achieve the opportunity. Awesome. Well, with that, I think that's pretty inspiring. Um, my hope is that our audience takes the time to read the report, to engage, to, as, a, as we said, create the clinician of the future, and uh, we have a great opportunity ahead of us. So with that, Tate and Ian, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Appreciate it. With that, I'm Shiva Gulani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise line. We're all in this together. Take care. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.